I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Koyuchi, C-O-Y-U-C-H-I. Koyuchi has been crafting the finest coastal-inspired organic bedding sheets, towels, robes, and apparel, and more for a clean, environmentally conscious home since 1991. They're trying to change the way people think about buying home textiles by providing transparency, product innovation, and practices that limit harm to the environment and the people that live in it. Their transparency is being open about the supply chain, their fibers, their chemistry, and their safeties. They're really product innovators, and they're committed to organic, regenerative, and circular initiatives with the planet and the people in mind. They see themselves as disruptors in the way textiles are made and are activists for a cleaner and safer planet. And P.S., their pajamas are amazing, and they were so kind to give us five pairs of pajamas as giveaways, which we're doing on Instagram and everything else. So anyway, Kayuchi, you are the best. I love your jammies and I'm sure everybody else will too. Thanks so much for being a sponsor. Hi everybody. Today I'm re-releasing this episode that I recorded as one of my first episodes with Courtney Mom, who's the author of Touch. She has since released Costa Alegre and also before and after the book deal. But her novel Touch is really timely for what's going on now with the coronavirus and the inability to touch each other and what society looks like when that happens. So I really just wanted to re-release this so you could hear about all her forward-thinking imaginations that she put into her novel. And uh, this is definitely a great novel to pick up while you're at home because it's so relevant. Um, So, And also, Courtney has been so great about assembling lots of resources for everybody during the COVID-19 crisis. So um, have a listen, and hopefully this will help you pass your weekend. Today, I'm excited to be with Courtney Mom, who is the author of two novels, Touch and I am having so much fun here without you. She inked a nonfiction book deal just last month, ironically called After the Book Deal, which will come out in 2019. Touch is about a trend forecaster hired to predict the next trends in technology for a giant tech company. Problems arise when she starts to feel like the next big thing is going to be a return to in-person interactions. Touch was rated one of NPR's best books of the year, and it was a New York Times editor's choice. A graduate of Brown University, Courtney has published essays in the New York Times and O! The Oprah Magazine, and has co-written films that have premiered at Sundance and won awards at Cannes. She has worked as a trend forecaster, a creative brand strategist, a corona promoter in Paris, and a corporate namer for MAC Cosmetics. She currently lives with her husband and daughter in Connecticut, where she founded the collaborative retreat, The Cabins. So welcome, Courtney. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So for listeners who haven't read your latest novel, Touch, can you tell me a little more about it and how you came up with the idea for it? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Touch is my second book, and it is about an American trend forecaster named Sloane Jacobson, who has lived in France for about the past two decades. And she's called on assignment to New York City to work for what's basically a turducken of <laughs> Google, Amazon, and Apple. Specifically, she's tasked with forecasting the next trends in technology. But while she's there, she starts to feel like the next trends in technology are going to be no technology at all, a return to face-to-face interactions and, and touch and intimacy. This is problematic because it's against her her clients' interests, stated interests, and their bottom line. And also she has a, a life partner, a zany French guy who's been going around publishing these op-eds on 
post-sexuality and the death of penetrative sex. And our fearless heroine finds herself in a little bit of a conundrum. (laughs) (laughs) And I came came to write Touch. It actually came out of, uh, as many of my books do, a failed attempt to write a different book, which when I showed that draft to my agent, she said, you know, the only thing, she said it nicer than this, but she said the only thing worth, worth holding on to in this book is this woman's job. Her, her job is very interesting. In, in that particular rendition of the book, the Sloan character had been a prop stylist, specifically for Crate and Barrel. Okay. And I had made her a prop, I was sort of circling around my past where I had worked as a trend forecaster, but I, I don't know, I hadn't worked up the courage to go there yet. It's a little bit of an abstract occupation that a lot of people don't understand. It's also, I was under a lot of NDA, non-disclosure mm-hmm. agreements. Mm-hmm. But I guess this was in, let's see, 2015, I started thinking of the idea. And I, around that time, I was, for me, at least in my social circle, that's when I started noticing that my friends were just... Everyone was looking at their phone all the time and you, letting their phone make all the decisions for them. You know, if, if they were hungry, they'd ask their phone what they should eat and where they should eat. And so I was thinking, well, gosh, I wonder, I wonder if intuition is something that if you don't practice and if you let it, you know, get rusty, mm-hmm. could human beings actually lose their sense of intuition? And I thought about my prop stylist, trend forecaster, and I thought, well, what could I, what could I do with a woman who, you know, makes her living off of her intuitions? What, what if she starts to, what if intuition isn't interesting to people anymore? And, and, and so slowly I started building the book that would many drafts later <laughs> become touch. <laughs> do you feel like you have that same sense of intuition where you can almost predict things that are coming at times? So I mean, so I do sometimes feel that. I mean, I don't think that I'm alone. I think a lot of artists have a little bit of a heightened awareness and certainly novelists are, I think they're paying more attention than, than most people. They're thinking perhaps more than most people about people's motivations and, you know, it's our job to be aware. So yeah, I think maybe I've lived now in the countryside for over a decade. So it's, if I did have a skill, it's, it's, distilled a little bit because I'm mostly around trees and <laughs> squirrels and senior citizens now. I'm not really in the heart of you know, the, the, the trends that are <laughs> happening. But yeah, I mean, it's there a little bit. <laughs> I feel like another big element of touch is the relationship, sort of what happens to families after you lose a parent. Because mm, yeah. I felt like that whole dimension was like a whole other part of the book that was super interesting and moving. And Yeah, I mean, I think... When the book first came out, the press was very nice to me, but they focused a lot on the technology aspect, where, in fact, the family struggles and Sloane's present inability to connect with with people in her life was, for me, really at the heart of the book, actually, because what we're dealing with is someone who's hyper-successful, she's well-paid, she's respected, but she doesn't have a lot of friends. Her relationship with her, you know, lover, I guess, is there's no love in it. You know, there's no sensuality. There's no touch in it. But and a lot of that stems back from the the loss of her father because he's, you know, 
you know, and you know this from having children, but when you decide to love completely, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. And she really, really loved her father. And was uh, when he passed away, she was still young enough that she was just innocent and completely open to the love and, and didn't really, she wasn't old enough to have been hurt yet and realized that you, you can lose people, you know. And so he, his, 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 his death was really a pivot in making her the, the somewhat cold-hearted, untouchable person that, that we meet when the book opens. Right, because when, when the book starts, you have her pegged as the ultimate anti-mom. <laughs> yeah. And you even had her quoted as saying, reproduction is akin to eco-terrorism. And that she <laughs> called reading short-sighted. That she's uh, even helping out with a conference called Reproduction with the re kind of crossed, yeah, out, crossed, crossed out. out. You know, asking, you know, what will we make when we stop having kids? And are the needs of people who, for whatever reason, decisively remain childless going to be different than those who reproduce? Was it the death of her father that made you want to create a character that didn't want children? Or did you think that was sort of just a good mechanism for contrasting with? I think it's both, really. I, I mean, it took me a while to get there, but I, it really felt like putting her specifically on a task force that was coming up with products for the voluntarily childless not only made sense in terms of future forecasting, because the world is, it's overpopulated, right? Mm -hmm. So people can choose to have children, they can choose not to. But the the idea that, you know, perhaps it's not environmentally the best idea to have more than one, one or two ch ch uh, children, that, that, that's something that could be argued. But, but more, it was really for, I wanted to set up a sterile environment, both literally and figuratively, where consumerism and overconsumption was incredibly heightened, as was sort of modern American society's lack of empathy and compassion. So when you read the book, you're exposed to a lot of these brainstorming sessions where they're literally trying to think, well, what can we come up with for, pe for people who decide not to have children? What cosmetic products will they need? What kind of furniture? What's their house going to look like? What's their car going to look like? Does it have, you know, is it driverless? Is it so on and so forth? So the way that they're speaking about the people who are going to be using these products is in a very robotic, cold manner where I do think the minute you invite children into the equation, there's a hundred thousand different ways to parent. But I think a common denominator, if you're going to try to be a good parent, is is an uh, compassion, right? Empathy and ability to be sensitive to other people's feelings. So that was too much kindness for the beginning of the book. I, I it was important to have her, and in in an element of yes, yeah, sterility, and also you know she's. 40, she's moving past 40, so there is, she has decided she's not going to have children, but her, in theory, it might not be too late if she if she changed her mind. I loved how in the story you had all these, like, 20-somethings talking about oh, yeah. <laughs> what they do with their furniture versus people with kids and how, you know, people with kids, like, you use your 
your sofas so much more versus just occasionally sitting on them for wine and cheese. Like just wine, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about my sofas like, oh my gosh, you know, all the pillow cushions become like, you know, a raft and, you know, everything well, is just Everything's used. a fort. Everything right? becomes everything's, something else and make It's funny, yeah, because I have, I have friends. I have a lot of friends who are much, much younger. I have some friends who don't have children. And it's so true that I would go to their house and the way that they were setting up, you know, the wine and the cheese yeah. was so specifically like, oh, I'm excited <laughs> to use this coffee table yeah. and it's going to be used for this one thing. Thing where I mean, our coffee tables just—we don't even have one anymore because it became a, a, a hazard. <laughs> even what you said about the fridge, which I've been thinking about oh, ever God, since, fridge, like yeah. how you how people with kids open the fridge, open and close, open and close, open and close all the time, and you don't have to think so much about the supplies you need. Whereas people right. who don't have kids yet or aren't home as much, you know, every so often they're like, "Oh, I wonder what's in the fridge." It's so funny that you notice the the fridge thing because I think I had to edit out. I was a little obsessed obsessed with this fridge thing because <laughs> I was writing it at a time where my husband and I live in Litchfield County now, but for 10 years we lived in the Berkshires in a town called Sandisfield. It, it, pretty hard to get more remote. Like the post office was up for sale. I mean, there was not <laughs> a lot going on. And we lived a half an hour from anything. You wanted a cup of coffee, gas, it's a half hour in the car. And when we had our child, you know, we lived in a sort of loosey-goosey manner. We rarely had, like, the fridge wasn't ever stocked enough, but we would just make pasta. Right. We're both artists. It didn't care. But then we had my daughter. It started to really, really matter. You know, if, if my husband would go out and forget something from the grocery list, the milk, if he forgot the milk, right. it became this tremendous thing. Like, a, that would be an hour out of my day or his back and forth to get this. It, the, the fridge became, like, what was in the fridge became... It became so, so important. So, yeah, I have a little fridge obsession. I feel like as soon as I go into people's homes, I'm soon like... I know you want to learn. Yeah, it's like being in the grocery line with someone. It's a very intimate thing. You're seeing how they feed themselves and if they have a family. Even now, like when I go to my mom's house and the first thing I do is open the fridge. Now it's like so empty and sad in there. Oh. You know, (laughs) I'm like, mom, you have no food. Right? Because we're like overstocked. I mean, you know, obviously very lucky, you know, that we're all in this like world that we can afford food right, and right. everything else. But, you know, we have, like, things just flying. You can barely pack it all in. Yeah, no, I mean, some people have more than one fridge. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> anyway, sorry, not to keep going on about no, this. I'm but, glad. Uh, I'm glad that someone else shares my fridge <laughs> obsession. Speaking of moms, for a book about someone who didn't want to be a mom, I feel like you did such a great job of painting a picture of Sloane's mother and that, that mm-hmm. dynamic between them. And I love the scene when Sloane wakes up in her mother's house in the morning after she spent the night there for the first time in years. And she's, her mom wants to make her pancakes and she's like, no, don't do it. (laughs) And then it says, Sloane looked at her mother's mismatched eyes and her wild hair and the bathrobe with the tea stains. And she wanted to fall down on the floor with her and lean against the cupboards and let everything out. Tell her mother that her partner preferred rubbing up against strangers and touching her in bed. Tell her that there was a darkness in her decision to work for Mammoth. But instead, she just stood there at the fork between the way she wanted her relationship with her mother to be like and the way it actually was. And then she says toast would probably be easier. Oh, yeah. That makes me really sad. That makes me really sad, too. I mean, I know I wrote it, but it still makes, (laughs) I still am very touched by that. Yeah, the the mother-nod relationship is another really key motor, I think, to this story. And... I mean, what you have is someone, her mom is the exact opposite of Sloane. She gives of herself readily, generously. She self-effaces a little bit. She she really, Sloane has a sister and her sister's about to have her third child. So her mother's joy is really taking care of other people. And 
she went into overdrive when when her husband died and and Sloan was unable she's just not selfless that way and so she's somewhat repelled by her mother's emotional generosity as well as probably being jealous of it because she just I mean, it's a beautiful thing to see and she just doesn't have it and and doesn't know how to communicate with a woman. I mean, it's just so clear in all of their scenes how much the mother just wants Sloane to be kind, just stop, yeah. you know, and, and and touch her, just hug, you know, the, yeah. like like you just read. She, she's like, gosh, if we could just embrace. But yeah. it's not as easy as it sounds. And I mean, definitely their relationship was inspired by my own relationship with my mom, who is that kind of woman who just gives and gives and gives. And and the, another another commonality is that Sloan and her mother completely struggle from a lack of, I don't want to, not, not respect, but understanding mm-hmm. regarding what the other person does. So Sloan's not a mother. She's not a very maternal person. So she can't really understand where her mother's coming from. Whereas you know, even Sloane's colleagues don't really understand what she she does. Her mother doesn't really understand. She doesn't speak any other languages. She has a daughter who lives in France. And that is very similar to me and my mother when my touch had already come out. And I had, a, I had an op-ed in the New York Times. And my mom called me and she was like, did you know you have an article in the New York Times? <laughs> like, how did that happen? Do you know someone there? And I was, you know, I was like, God, this is just a really big divide. Do I know someone there? And like, no, I've written two books and this is sort of how it works. And I didn't know whether to be offended or, or just spell it out for her, you know? And, and uh, so that's, yeah, that's a personal <laughs> struggle I have with my mother. I feel like most mother-daughter relationships are complicated. complicated. <laughs> yeah. It's like sometimes I look at my two little girls now and I'm like, I don't know how, how is this going to evolve into oh, the most yeah. complicated I, I, I joke with my husband. I'm like, I think our daughter won't go to boarding school for high school, but I will. <laughs> I just, I can feel this coming. She's really stuck. She's very much like I was. And I, I, I hope against hope that I'm wrong, but I, I, I foresee some cloudy weather. <laughs> you start the book with Sloan being so deprived of physical contact that she'll jump on the crowded subway just to yeah. feel people again. And, you know, at the end, you know, not to give anything away, you have her sort of engaged in this very passionate physical relationship, like the complete opposite from the beginning. Were you trying to illustrate what's sort of lost with the advent of technology or just sort of hit home on this sort of universal need for, for touch, human contact? Yeah, for this book, I interviewed a professional cuddler named Samantha Hess out in Portland. And she's she's actually one of the people who started this movement of a professional touch, professional Mm -hmm. hugging. And she was telling me that even for people who didn't buy into this whole thing of, you know, professional embraces, all it took was an actual hug from, from, you know, a Mm -hmm. total stranger. Normally, to just get them crying, sobbing. Just a simple touch. They didn't need to explain why they were there, what the problem was, or how confusing it seemed to need to solve the obstacles between them and solving their problem. Just just the embrace was so comforting that people just sobbed. She says most people come to her office just to like cry in someone else's arms. And so it was very important to me at a certain point in the story that 
we allow Sloane a little bit of that unlocking, that physical unlocking as well. You know, when she's finally touched, she's basically frigid. I mean, her mm-hmm. her you know partner doesn't not only does he not, not touch her, but he's he's pronounced to the New York Times that he's never going to. He's quite proud of his post-sexuality. And she's so busy, she's pretending to be fine with it, but she's not fine mm-hmm. with it, you know, and she's completely isolated. Even her her closest friend is her driverless car. You know, she has no touch in her life. And so when she finally has a little, it's just it's, it, the, the floodgates are are completely open. And, and then, you know, it's, it's fun to have a little sex in, in a summer <laughs> book. I think it's, I, it's fun. I like to and write you, those scenes. You said the, uh, when's the paperback coming out? August 7th. August, yeah. Okay, perfect. That's fun. <laughs> I know I've honed in a lot on touch because I really loved it and just finished it. And <laughs> it's like stirred up so many different thoughts. <laughs> no, it was really great. But can you tell me a little more generally about your path and how you became a novelist and yeah. all the different works and the film writing? Film oh, all, everything. Yeah, like everything. All, I, your well, bio, like, let's see. I think I have somewhat non-typical path in that I didn't study English in college. I went to Brown University and I studied comparative literature and French translation. And then I, I moved to Paris after college and was working sort of under the table as a translator. And then my official job was a party promoter for Corona Extra, which it's a long story. <laughs> I don't even really like that beer, but it was a way to get a visa. And actually, it was a great job for a writer because I worked at night. So I wrote all day and I had been working at that time. So I never got an MFA or anything. I just had always loved to write and read and was working on a short story, which was not short. It was just getting longer and longer. And it was getting, it was at 30,000 words. And I showed it to a girlfriend and she said, I think this is a novel. And what was great, because I didn't have a formal background in writing, was that there was no fear. Mm-hmm. It was just not in my mind to think about, I don't know, agents or competition or anything. I thought, oh, it's a novel. Okay, well, I'll keep going. You know, so and, and I, I was writing the book that would eventually become my first book. I'm having so much fun here without you. I, I wrote it very quickly, and actually, I got an agent and an editor very quickly. But I was like a little girl. I mean, I was I don't know, was 23 or something, and I just didn't know enough about the the way the the world works. And so I was doing everything. I was revising all summer long for this editor, and I was doing everything without a contract and. Long story short, by the time I got back to New York and was supposed to meet this editor, and she quit her job, and the pro- the the project was just completely orphaned, and it actually wasn't published for ten more years, and it was not that I wrote the book from scratch ten years later. So, you know, I, in those ten years, I mean, in the interim, I really wasn't very much part of the literary community. I work in branding on the side and kind of kept my word chops up that way, you know, mm-hmm. writing copy and I work as a namer and my husband's French. I don't know. We started writing films together and then, and then what? And then I, I don't know. After 10 years, I really reached a point where I thought, okay, well, I'm not, I thought I would have a novel. I, I guess I'll be a published person in a different way. Maybe it'll be little pamphlets or these funny pieces online. And I kind of took it as a I tried to feel kind of free and joyful about it. And so I started publishing a lot of weird stuff, whatever I felt like doing. And, you know, agents started reading it. And I got this agent and she was like, you must have a novel, you know. And I, 
<laughs> oh, it's in a box. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, I wrote it over completely from scratch. And yeah, that was, I am having so much fun here without you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see it. There see it is. It. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And can you tell me more about the cabins? What oh, is yeah. this retreat that you... So the cabins, I don't, I'm not, my husband, Diego Ungaro, is a filmmaker. And we used to collaborate together more than we do now. We would write screenplays together and our films would go on the film festival circuit and I would go to these film festivals and I would meet only filmmakers, not even screenwriters, just filmmakers. And then I would go the next weekend to a writer's festival or a writer's conference and I would meet only writers. And I would go back and forth and think, oh, you know, this short filmmaker should really meet this short story writer. Gosh, I wish I had a way to get everyone together. And I started thinking of a program where it would be interdisciplinary and people could not just network, but but learn from each other. But just logistically, I was just so overwhelming by where am I going to do this? How am I going to do it? But when we moved from, so I got a web domain for it. I mean, this idea was in the back of my mind for years, but, but when we moved to Norfolk, Connecticut, it's an old town that historically has a lot of, you know, great families that, that lived there and they have these estates that roll down to this beautiful lake and they have lake cabins and Little by little, I started meeting all these people who had spare houses and spare cabins. And I started thinking, well, I've got my places. I could do this here. You know, there's enough room. And by that point in my life, I had enough contacts, I felt. So the cabins, I founded it in 2016. And it's an interdisciplinary collaborative retreat based on skill sharing and across disciplines. So we keep it low cost. The Students are the teachers. So everyone comes as of a caliber where they can teach an hour-long masterclass in the subject of their their choice. And the only caveat is it can't you can't get up there and read your own work. Mm-hmm. We do a sort of closing evening where everyone gets to get up and perform their own, well, like a talent show, basically. But that's only on the fourth day. And up until then, it's really about learning from other people and being a little bit more humble and open-minded and... So it's like an intellectual summer camp, really. You could have a weekend full of, you could have a a dance class followed by a class in carpentry or stone Mm. engraving or something that seems boring, but so important, like writing for, you know, grants, grant Mm -hmm. applications Mm -hmm. or something like that. How many people go at one time? So it's very small. We keep it like nine people maximum. Mm -hmm. So it's usually between six and nine. We form the group by, it's symbiotic, you know, like yeah. who who can learn from who can learn from who. So it's it's really neat. So this summer um, applications are open until <laughs> July 1st and it'll be our fourth session. So it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's the cabinsretreat.com. <laughs> cabinsretreat.com. Yeah. Everybody write that down. <laughs> so aside from, so you have a nonfiction book coming out at, yeah. called After the Book Deal. So it's after, so it's going to be two books in one oh, okay. actually. And since we last book and the First part of the book will be before the book deal. Oh, okay. And then hopefully you'll, I think this is how we're going to do it. You'll, you'll flip it over and you'll have after the book deal. So it'll be a cool resource that people can graduate from, you know, so it'll, it'll be like a giant, giant. And if you don't get a book deal, you can just tear off half of it and start in the garbage. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Stomp on it and yep. eat it. <laughs> and you said you're working on two other novels. Yes, I have a novel coming out next summer, 2019, called called Costa Alegre, and then another book I'm working on right now that I can't say the title of because I'm superstitious. Okay. All right. <laughs> Can you say what either of those books are going to be about? Yeah, Costa Alegre is a big, 
departure for me. It's a little bit more experimental. It's about the surrealist artists who were exiled from Europe during World War II. It's heavily inspired by the story of Peggy Guggenheim, who the American art heiress who helped a lot of European intellectuals and artists escape mm -hmm. Europe before Hitler invaded. In real life, they went to New York. In my book, they go to the jungle in Mexico. And the whole book is written uh, in a diary format from mm. um, Peggy Guggenheim's daughter, a 15-year-old mm. daughter. <laughs> wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And the other book you don't want to talk about? Oh, you don't have to. No, it's okay. I can tell. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's too, I'm too close. <laughs> too soon. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. Well, I will say that it's going to be another portrait of a troubled couplehood. Okay. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. I won't brag. In terms of your writing and how you do your best work and everything, what are your... What's your go-to schedule or how do you... <laughs> child do care. It all yeah. comes down to quality child care and my child being healthy. If those things are intact, then I can... <laughs> how old is your daughter? She's four. Okay. She's four. Well, thankfully, I have a very supportive partner who actually does a lot of the bulk of the child rearing. So perfect week in a perfect world looks like we get our daughter on the bus at 8.17 and then... <laughs> From 8.30 to 2, I will write, more or less, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have there's some emailing, right. there's some lunch. <laughs> but I really try to, to write. And then by 2, I'm sort of tapped out and I try to do something nice for myself that involves exercise. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. You know, the days, got to go get my daughter. And then, and then I try to be a mom and a wife and not work once she's home and pretty strict about if I'm not careful with myself I'll just work myself to death so I try to set up these you know don't work in the evenings and I don't work on the weekends and I find I really I need that and and that when Monday comes around I'm actually excited to work again rather than feeling like oh my god I'm just working myself into the grave so I try to work really hard when I'm working and then not work <laughs> that's good do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there? Of course. I have a whole book coming out about that. Yeah. Well, a couple things. Yeah, no, yeah. Like, how long do you have? Yeah. No, no, I have yeah, yeah. I have two pieces of advice, and one is craft and one is just practical. The practical piece of advice is do not go into the writing life expecting to support yourself by writing. You know, be smart about it and get a job, preferably with health insurance, something that you don't hate, where you're mm -hmm. not going to come home a miserable shell of a person. Or if you have someone to support you, fantastic. And don't look down on, you know, waitressing or bartending or babysitting is actually, the hourly rate is really good compared to, you'll make more babysitting than you do as an adjunct. So, you know, don't knock these like simple or what, what comes off as sort of hourly, I don't know, occupations. And then craft-wise, don't let perfectionism get in your way. I speak to a lot of people who are just so, they feel like what's on the screen needs to be perfect and what's coming out of the printer needs to be perfect and the first draft is the one that's going to get them the book deal. And, you know, you shouldn't, it's good to push yourself, obviously, and try to come up with something beautiful that you're proud of. But just know that ultimately, if you keep working really hard, you'll have a support team around you at some point. You know, hopefully you'll have an editor an agent, some writing friends, and these people will help you <laughs> get it just right. But if you don't get the words on the page, you're never going to get there. So don't 
for so long, no one's going to see your work. So you might as well put stuff on the page and have fun and don't sit there not writing because you're, you're, you're ashamed it's not going to be great. It's not going to be great. The first drafts are terrible. Terrible. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thanks pleasure. for coming in. I'm excited for what you have coming down the pike. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Me. All right. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Kaiuchi for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.